0: I'd imagine. Hello, everyone, and welcome to DSA San Francisco's The Priority Podcast. Through this podcast series, you'll hear education sessions and reports from our priority campaigns. In each episode, you'll also hear about how you can get involved to fight for the socialist transformation in San Francisco, across the country, and around the world. I'm Andrew Morales, and today's episode is a recording from the third installment of our educational series on a socialist answer to the housing question. The title for this event was, Limits of Policy Under Capitalism and Opportunities for Organizing. It was recorded this last June in 2022. Since then, both Props M and H of DSA San Francisco's People First Slate have passed, with Prop M, the Empty Homes Tax, bearing particular relevance to the recording you're about to hear. This presentation focuses on a series of articles on housing justice with an overarching analysis of the limits of policy work under capitalism and an exploration of the potential for mass organization and mobilization. Topics included are Alex Lee's social housing proposal for San Jose, critiques of the prominent affordable housing programs throughout America, systemic limitations imposed on Berlin's housing expropriation initiative, and Stomp Out Slumlord's tenant organizing and mobilization work during the earlier stages of the pandemic. None of the content in this presentation is meant to denounce our parliamentary efforts or campaigns. Rather, it is to illustrate how parliamentary work alone, without a revolution to overhaul the underlying capitalist system, will inevitably face various systemic barriers, be they political, financial, or legal, that prevent real, meaningful changes in line with the given policy. Superstructural operations, like policy work, can only function in accordance with their underlying base, in our case, the capitalist system of private property and ownership. Any change in policy that might challenge private capital and interests of the bourgeois elite will inevitably face systemic barriers. It is only after we have established a worker's state, after we have changed the base to one of collective ownership, that the real changes we are fighting for will become possible. Rather than dissuade us from all policy work, it is our hope that the following presentation might encourage us to reflect on how policy work fits into our larger socialist agenda, that of organizing and cultivating a true revolutionary movement that can usher in those real changes we seek. And on that note, let us begin. Yeah, so as you know, this is the third installment to the Housing Educational Series, A Socialist Answer to the Housing Question, and today's focus is the limits of policy under capitalism and the opportunities for organizing. So to start all this, I'd like to open with uh, two quotes, and the first is a response to Assemblymaker Alex Lee's social housing proposal. So the quote is, the resistance is going to be political, and it comes from the highest levels of government. The resistance is that it's going to take a huge amount of money out of the hands of big banks. To get something like this done, it would practically require a revolution. And the next quote is from Stomp Out Slumlords. uh, And this is them uh, talking about just uh, the necessity for organizing their struggle. Before the pandemic, we would have held that these struggles were largely spontaneous, the result of enormous structural changes at work for years that erupt unpredictably. To a certain extent, we still think that that's true. But after the last 10 months, we figured out that this kind of defiance doesn't happen automatically. Historical circumstances beyond our control certainly play a role, but having lived and, organized, lived and organized through a major upsurge of protests, we are convinced that the will to fight needs to be organized. Okay, so as mentioned, today we're going to focus on four primary articles on housing justice, and that's the uh, LA tenant union's take on the privatization of affordable housing. Uh, San Jose Spotlight's piece on Alex Lee's social housing proposal, uh, the Friends of Classless Society's analysis of the expropriation campaign in Berlin, and uh, Stomp Out Slumlord's pamphlet on the tenant organization work uh, during the pandemic. So before getting into the specifics of these pieces, I'd like to first spend a little time going over uh, two major themes that are prevalent throughout each of these articles. And it's, it's my hope that in getting a better understanding of these themes, and how they might play out in each respective topic, that those themes might serve as a guiding point for us as we try to uh, apply this information and uh, the insights from these articles to our own work with the empty homes tax. So you might think of the two themes that I'm referring to as two sides of the same coin. Um, They're both limitations and opportunities presented to us in our uh, parliamentary work. And this is definitely true, I think, for the housing crisis, but I would also argue that it's pretty much uh, the case for any symptom that we're going to try to address of capitalism in our uh, work in the future. Now, the first theme revolves around the inherent structural barriers uh, produced by capitalism, um, and they can be legal, economic, political, uh, and these barriers prevent the enactment of any real change through policy. We see this come up a few times uh, in the articles mentioned. Either politicians fail to uphold measures for the expropriation of real estate companies due to foreign investment interests. Uh, It can be financial limitations that prevent the possibility of a modern social housing program. Um, It can be how privatized affordable housing excludes those in real need and exacerbates uh, gentrification. So for the first theme, I think it might also help to keep in mind Marx's framework of uh, what a base and a superstructure are. So just a quick overview. Uh, remember that a base of a society's organization refers to both the means of production. So what is used to make goods and the relations of production. So that is like labor aristocracy, class hierarchy, private property, capital commodities, so on. It's how uh, goods are made and distributed and distributed. Uh, that stands at the base. And that's like the real driving force of a society. Um, The superstructure is everything in society that grows out of the base. So that can be ideology, art, morality, culture, family system, religion, so on. But most importantly, um, it is also law and politics. So it's the very framework through which we find ourselves attempting to make policy changes. The superstructure as an expression of the real driving force, the base, reflects and maintains the base. Uh, While it might shape the base slightly, its primary function is to justify how the base operates. And because of this, it ends up defending the power uh, of the elite ruling class. It defends their capital. So it makes sense that uh, policies, um, even if they're established democratically uh, through proper legal channels, um, they're going to always have uh, somewhat of a hard time being realized. if they are attempting to make any change that would challenge private capital and the interests of the the ruling uh, power elite. So short story long, uh, as long as we remain under capitalism that base will generate these barriers to change. um, And you'll see what I'm talking about as I get into like the specifics of each article. Um, I think it'll make more sense if if it doesn't right now as we go on. Okay, so the second theme uh, points us to opportunity. So with the housing crisis, just like any other failure under capitalism, um, this crisis creates for us an opportunity to organize and mobilize. Uh, in the Stomp Out Slumlords article, uh, we saw the pamphlet. Um, they give us a pretty thorough account of how they were able to build up a collective power and fight back when many had become unemployed due to the pandemic, uh, when our own government like, really failed to, to stand up for them and uh, protect their uh, living situations and when they were on the verge of being evicted. But I think this was also the case in the Berlin and LA articles that we saw. Um, We saw how the barriers to real um, policy change or uh, barriers to social resources, like doing anything for the people. um, This gave these, this gives both of these groups an opportunity to organize and use this for uh, to basically show like how our uh, capitalist system, uh, even when you, uh, are able to elect something democratically, and you have something in place that everyone's agreeing on, um, it still falls short. So the the, realist, the the key point here, though, is that um, organizing groups have to be prepared for these failures. Uh, they have to be properly prepared and oriented towards real collective organization ahead of time. And I'll get into that also uh, once we actually get to the, top, uh, the articles. Um, I think it'll make sense uh, as we go on. So uh, just with that intro, I wanted, uh, or just for that beginning part, I wanted people to keep this in the back of their minds before getting into the specifics of the articles, the two big themes, um, and then really keep those in mind when I get to the questions portion, and we try to apply this to our own work. Okay, so to begin, I'd like to start with the current privatized form of affordable housing. Um, the history of how we got here and the impact of privatization. And naturally, I want to look at the LA Tenants Union uh, article uh, on affordable housing as a scam. So maybe to start, what do we mean by affordable housing here? The federal government defines housing as affordable today if the cost of rent does not exceed 30% of a family's monthly income. Um, Affordable homes are supposed to be for families or individuals whose incomes are less than 60% or less of what is known as the area medium income or AMI of a given area. Um, I'll go into more detail on all that in a bit. Uh, But the term, however, has also become a catchphrase that's repeatedly used in the political process of privatizing once public housing resources. It's been used to create what they refer to as posh programs, and that's privately owned, publicly subsidized housing. Through these affordable housing programs, public subsidies are drained for private organizations that under the name of public welfare end up really being used to serve the interests of private profit. Uh, Now, as mentioned, these resources weren't always run by private businesses. The first U.S. housing programs came out of the Housing Act of 1937, following a decades long period of agitation by organized labor, civil rights groups, and women's organizations. These were set up as actual social housing programs that were owned and run by the government. Uh, While these groups initially uh, pushed for public housing for all, they had to compromise under the Housing Act for a public housing program directed only at the poor, but it was a big step forward when they were able to accomplish this. That said, from its very onset, the program was hijacked and utilized for alternative purposes. Although initially it capped rent for public housing at 20% of a tenant's income, it allowed for building of, uh, the building of segregated projects that were used in various cities to divide the labor force and guarantee property values through the racial segregation of neighborhoods, redlining. Um, significant pressures from private real estate companies also set strict maximum cost limits for these projects, resulting in, quote, highly standardized minimal public housing units that were often stigmatized for their appearance. While the federal government flushed billions of dollars into the development of segregated white suburbs, public housing was seen more and more as like the last result for the housing of the non-white poor inner city population. So over the next three decades, public housing construction, um, which was deeply intertwined with the original slum clearance and uh, what they called the urban removal agenda, it, it became a primary tool for the displacement of low income communities of color, um, nevertheless, it still, that program still prevented thousands of families from being brutally exploited by landlords, but in the 1960s, um, we start to see the first signs of the privatization of public housing. So policymakers start to shift away from the construction of large publicly owned and operated housing projects and towards the partnerships with private landlords and developers. Uh, Then in 1973, we see uh, President Nixon declare a moratorium on federally funded housing. And throughout the rest of this decade, we see uh, the development of affordable housing as a policy tool um, designed to replace public provisions with private ownership, uh, socialization with market mechanisms, and human rights with profit motive. So... uh, We see this process play out uh, further throughout a series of acts uh, under Ford, Reagan, Clinton, and even up to Obama and Trump. Public housing stock is continually depleted, and the remaining are placed into the hands of private businesses. Um, Because of all this, affordable housing uh, has become uh, the increasingly dominant housing situation. uh, And through this, federal and public subsidies are given to private and uh, nonprofit developers. And the US housing policy, to quote the article, has become a market-driven mixed income program of affordable housing for carefully selected, mostly middle-income tenants, largely excluding the very poor. Okay. So what has been the real damage from the privatization of social housing uh, through affordable housing? So first, um, these buildings are developed with subsidies from public funds, as I mentioned, uh, but the profit they generate uh, ends up going to private owners. Rent is initially regulated through covenants at uh, what is determined to be affordable rent rates. Um, but these covenants have expiration dates, after which point the building owner is uh, freed from all prior rent regulations and is not uh, required to pay back any of the public funding used to build the units. Um, and these private landlords can end up like hoarding whatever profit they've obtained after that. Um, And that's, again, is is what POSH is, right? Uh, Privately owned, publicly subsidized housing. So they're able to hoard uh, profits from public funding um, for themselves and it becomes private profit. Um, As I also mentioned, affordable rent regulations have expiration dates. So um, these expiration dates are set either at 15, 30, or 50 years uh, from the time that they're first made, the components are first set. Because of this, there's an eventual abrupt hike in rent prices as soon as the covenant ends. And uh, that inevitably results in lower-class families who have been living there, um, who have not only been dependent on these housing resources, but have also been the reason why the projects were made in the first place. It it pushes them out. Uh, So another thing, uh, despite being publicly funded, these buildings are still privately owned and subject to private capital interests, which then results in tenant exploitation. So they talk about one landlord who would charge like massive fees for parking and pets, and who would repeatedly allow his his buildings to fall into disrepair. Um, some of them would also do uh, a type of double dipping, where they would basically be able to draw off of Section Eight, Section 8 subsidies and public subsidies for building construction. Um, so again, like these are are forms of public funding. These are public resources that they're using to build these buildings and to put tenants in, but then they're hoarding all the profits from it. Um, The rates that they set also aren't that affordable. Um, This isn't the case for all covenants, but many of them will set their uh, rental limits based on what I referred to earlier uh, as area median income. So it's uh, AMI. Now, because AMI is constantly adjusting upward, uh, building managers have the legal right to continuously raise rent despite tenants' inability to afford rent increases. The Housing and Urban Development, HUD, calculates AMI by the median of an entire county, not just the neighborhood or smaller region that someone's living in. So like, let's say you live in a very poor neighborhood that happens to be in a wealthier county, your affordable rent, or what gets determined to be affordable rent, is gonna be set uh, according to the county's AMI, which will be much higher than if it were to be, to be determined by a poor neighborhood. Um, and because of this, you know, a lot of families are then not gonna be able to afford even the affordable uh, rates and they're gonna be pushed out. So a good example of this, or let me first uh, go over the brackets. So those who earn up to 80% of uh, you know, the median of an area, the, like if their income is the median of that county, 80, like if they can earn up to 80% of that median, they're considered low income. If it's 50%, it's very low income, and if it's 30%, it's extremely low income. Um, if you look at LA County, like in the article, uh, they do a really good job at, at describing, like, kind of giving uh, a sense of like what this all looks like. So in LA County, uh, a family of four making 84,000 a year is going to qualify as uh, low income and elig- and is eligible for affordable housing. 40% of affordable housing units created in LA have been offered to that bracket, right? Meanwhile, you have households uh, for very low being at 52200 and extremely low at 31300 This is the crazy part. Over one-fifth of the households in LA County have been found to have incomes below 25000 So they're going to get totally shut out of this if the price is set according to the AMI of if the AMI, uh, if the, the low income bracket is set at 84,000, right? The cost is going to be determined by that uh, 84,000 uh, bracket. Um, with heightened competition around affordable uh, apartments and wait lists that end up turning into lotteries, uh, landlords don't really have any incentive to offer housing to anyone in those lower yet common brackets. They're, they're, they don't have any interest in decreasing the rent anymore, right? Um, so once again, end up getting shut out from these affordable housing resources. So we've already uh, briefly touched upon the gentrification process through, you know, hiked rent uh, prices after covenant expiration through not so affordable rent rates, Um, but there are a few more factors worth noting. So um, these programs are naturally built in neighborhoods where there is a heightened need, um, where resources have been historically divested where land values are lower, and where future returns are more promising to private investors. Um, Criminal background checks and checks on immigration status are also used to weed out applicants. And as we know, people with criminal histories and illegal immigration immigration statuses are going to be more uh, likely to be in uh, these neighborhoods and in need themselves. So in this way, longstanding low-income families are once again excluded from having access to these, these programs. Yeah, and then so two more short things on this. Um, Affordable housing is also used to uh, privatize the once public housing resources, as I mentioned before. For instance, under Clinton's HOPE 6 program, uh, 1,200 public housing units were demolished in Boyle Heights in the 1990s. This used to be the largest public housing complex west of the Mississippi, and now it's only a few affordable developments 93 for sale market homes and only 300 units of public housing. Also, uh, when they have uh, affordable housing listed as, as uh, um, when, when an organization takes on the status of affordable housing, they're also able to skirt around uh, rent control regulations. So uh, we can see how uh, the small semblance of America's social housing resources have changed over the last century, um, particularly with this transition into uh, privatized business. Um, I think it would then help to contrast uh, the scam of today's privatized affordable housing programs to what real social housing might look like. All right. Uh, so for this, of course, I'm going to look at the uh, San Jose article on Assemblymaker Alex Lee's proposal for a social housing measure. Um, I think this quote does a really good job at explaining what social housing could be. The quote from the article reads... The concept of social housing is in many ways different than most public housing models in the United States. A government entity would own, manage, and maintain a property and preserve it for affordable housing forever. Social housing also includes residents of varying income levels and is not restricted to an area's poorest residents. Quote, With the ultimate goal of housing as many people as possible of all incomes, social housing programs will invest affordable living costs and maintenance of properties, Lee wrote in a tweet. In contrast to private developers, we can build without an inherent need to turn a profit. Now, remember, um, what Lee is proposing here is in complete alignment with what uh, the working groups and other activists were initially trying to uh, push for uh, before the 1930s. the stipulation that it had to be a resource limited to the poor alone and those who, like you know, were in dire need, that was only a compromise that they uh, that they had to make for the Housing Act of 1937. And then, of course, you know, ironically, the same groups that are really poor that it's built for end up getting pushed out with the privatization, as I just uh, explained back there. Um, but yeah, if if you were also here for our last event on angles, the housing question. Uh, you'll also recall that this is in complete alignment with what uh, our goal as socialists is towards collective housing ownership instead of private ownership. So the mechanics of the uh, social housing program laid out by Lee are are pretty simple. Um, The housing itself would be owned by the state. Taxes would cover costs for developing and maintaining the house and uh, Proceeds from the rent gathered for social housing would also go back into covering costs for building uh, upkeep and maintenance. Um, Lee makes it pretty clear how this would be economically beneficial for uh, for the people. Um, so the difference between paying 40% of your income uh, for housing directly or paying like 5% in taxes and having your housing free. So I, I think we're probably all in agreement like that this is a, a no brainer, um, but this is the problem. So while most housing advocates agree that this is the right approach to the housing crisis, uh, many note significant political and financial barriers that would prevent a program like this from following through. Um, And that's uh, what was behind that opening quote that I showed about like, you know, we we practically need a revolution for something like this to go through. Um, Advocates primarily note the enormous state investment and government oversight that would be needed for a project like this. Um, Ray Bramson, the chief operating officer of Destination Home, sees funding as the primary barrier to following through on a social housing program as proposed by Lee. So Ray says, uh, "quote This is a strategy that can and will produce large housing opportunities at scale, but it needs a deep financial investment and commitment from the state to make it a feasible to make it feasible and a reality." He also notes that uh, these types of programs are generally more successful in countries that. Already have the appropriate tax structure set up uh, to really fund effective social programs. Yeah, so um, in this article, we see a lot of reservation around whether the proposal would actually go through, and if it were to go through, what the bill would end up looking like once it is actually implemented. Um, it is worth noting. I tried to look at some more recent articles on uh, developments with San Jose and, and Lee's proposal. Um, it. Lee's bill has already uh, received repro- approval from the uh, Housing and Community Development Committee, um, and it's now being sent to the Appropriations Committee for like the next step of its process. But before any of us get too excited about its success thus far, um, I do think it's, it's helpful to look at uh, well, to look at what happens, uh, what's been happening in Berlin. Uh, So the article on the expropriation initiative taken there and all the potential barriers uh, that they're they're seeing to uh, this initiative being fallen through, uh, even though it was already voted on and and won at the ballot box. So um, it's my hope that in looking at this, we'll see how even in uh, welfare states with strong support systems for social housing programs, uh, that they can still face significant limitations in their follow-through due to a variety of judicial, uh, political, and financial barriers and that all these barriers stem from the country's uh, capitalist form, the base, right? Yeah, because again, if, if we bring back to mind the relationship between the social base and the superstructure, limitations and barriers are, are kind of like, they're pretty bound to arise because uh, the superstructure can't help but reflect and sustain the base of capitalism. Um, and these barriers are, of course, a lot more likely to arise if the policy, that, if the change that a policy is is presenting uh, challenges private capital or the wealth of the elite. Okay, so we're going to go to the next article No Ship Will Come to Save Us. So, yeah, let's, uh, in looking at the uh, article on Berlin's expropriation initiative, um, Berlin at one point had the lowest uh, rates for rent in Germany, as well as amongst uh, most European capitals. Uh, over the last decade, though, um, Berlin's population grew by about 400,000. It was like a 10% increase. And their local government had nearly stopped building affordable housing units. Because of this, rent just skyrocketed. Uh, since 2016, it's gone up by 42%. Um, and since homeownership is only at 15% there, this was like heavily impacting the majority of Berlin's residents. With that rent hike and housing crisis in, in place, uh, there started to be a ton of mass protests and even increased instances of people squatting to just make a point uh, that we could occupy these empty empty uh, buildings. With the housing crisis now uh, becoming now one of the primary areas of focus for local resistance, a group of left-wing activists initiated, initiated a referendum to expropriate corporate housing stocks throughout the city. Uh, This was named the Expropriate Deutsche Wohnen & Company or the EDW initiative. So under this initiative, essentially, uh, it would ensure that real estate company, like any real estate company that owns over 3,000 apartment units in Berlin, those units, it would have their units uh, expropriated uh, with the ownership of the housing stocks uh, transferred to the local city government. And the holdings would be kept under extensive tenant control Uh, so that they could prevent any future renewed privatization. So the idea was that through this, the rent of about 240,000 apartments, give or take, would be capped and in some cases even lowered. Um, And since this would account for about 15% of the city's housing stock, the idea was that uh, affecting the rent costs for that many apartments would in turn shift the entire housing market in a way that benefits tenants at large. So yeah, the initiative was pretty well-received and it actually won at the ballot box and passed. But as uh, the authors of this article, the friends of the classless society point out, um, the measure faces many uh, limitations. Some kind of happened at the get-go. Some of them they're predicting to see come up soon as they take further steps to following through on it. Um, So the main perceived limitations that they see happening are, one, the court will eventually find the expropriation which doesn't even at being being in an expropriation like a real one, it's it's more of a forced sale. Um, the court needs to determine whether or not it's legally justifiable for this expropriation to happen, and whether it can legally they can legally go through with the process. The other uh, limitation is uh, whether the amount of compensation paid to the real estate companies again remember this is a forced sale and i'll explain that a little more in a second but uh this is a forced sale not an actual expropriation so whether the amount of the uh the compensation paid to real estate companies makes uh the project beneficial at all to tenants that's another factor um and whether the elected politicians in the senate will even honor and follow through with the expropriation measure so i'm gonna now go through in a little more detail like uh those those main points so first off Because expropriation has to take place under existing law, it can't be a real expropriation. Uh, A real expropriation would involve a simple transfer of ownership from private to public, right? But because of the German constitution, this has to be a forced sale from the real estate companies to the local city government. And that forced sale has to follow uh, what gets determined as appropriate compensation and cost paid, So the disputes over what an appropriate compensation would be, those are going to likely lead to this all going to court where they will need to determine what would be, to quote the uh, German constitution, article 14, what would be an equitable balance between the public interests and the interests of those affected. Now um, to explain a little more about like the, why they have hesitancy around the court following through with this because the larger housing market, because of the larger housing market crisis in place, the costs of subsidized social housing in Berlin and those of uh, state-owned corporations that are uh, already in place, like the social housing that's already there, those uh, rent costs have, have already been heightened. Uh, 50% of real estate-owned apartments have uh, costs that are already on par with the ones that are owned by the city. So the courts could easily determine that the city needs to pursue alternative routes before uh, first before um, in order to manage the rent crisis before doing the expropriation, and they'd save the expropriation as a last resort. Uh, they may also determine that the threshold that was determined uh, for expropriation, so if there are 3,000 apartments owned by uh, a real estate company, they might determine that that threshold is arbitrary and a violation of the principle of equal tr- of what they call equal treatment. So if that doesn't follow through, the court may intervene and say that, like, hey, we can't uphold this, even though it was voted on and, and is in place after winning at the ballot. Uh, so the next problem is the amount of compensation, as I mentioned earlier. So if the amount of compensation um, determined, that's going to determine whether or not this ends up being a worthwhile project for people at all um, in the end. So the idea is to find an amount that is in accordance with the law, the equal treatment that I mentioned, and... Uh, whether it will um, still be a significant improvement for tenants. So ideally, this would be uh, an amount established that does not burden state budget, allows rents to be reduced for tenants, and creates a payback system uh, with the housing stock that would fund new, inexpensive, municipal construction. The Senate's appraisals, however, have already estimated sums that are either like right at the edge of or over Berlin's uh, budget. So the amount of compensation if it's way below uh, uh, that level at or above the budget, um, that will determine whether or not this project is uh, beneficial for tenants at all. Like whether the rent will be insane along with all the other uh, apartment units um, or whether it will actually be helpful for people. Uh, So the last part was again, uh, uh, political interference. Uh, Politicians have um, either overtly stated or suggested that they won't uphold the expropriation initiative uh, once in office. So the Social Democrat and future mayor, Francisca Giffey, said during her election campaign that there would be no expropriation with her in office. Uh, Her Green Party rival, Bettina Drosch outrightly declared that she would ignore a yes vote for the act and would only use it as a leverage point for negotiations with the real estate corporations. And while it's the Senate in the end that decides the measures follow through, uh, they have already in their own way, uh, according to the authors, at least stated where they stand on all this, They never really needed a referendum to enact this for sale and could have initiated it on their own if they thought it would actually help with the housing crisis. Um, And the reason they haven't done this, it's not only because of legal and immediate financial concerns. Um, There's also, the Senate also has this larger concern about uh, the city's larger economic upswing over the last bit. They're worried specifically how this, uh, an expropriation like this, would create a, a reputation for the city that it's. Uh, hostile to foreign investors, so the enforcement of the sale alone, um, even though it's not a real expropriation, stands as uh, they think might stand as intrusive to like you know the freedom of property, and it would send what they have termed the wrong signal. So yeah, just just to sum that up, uh, we've already seen uh, political, legal, and financial barriers inherent in a capitalist system uh, that prevent uh, measures like these from from enacting real substantial changes. So first, the Constitution itself prevents uh, a real expropriation from happening. Second, the court could determine that the forced sale should not go, th- uh, go through and needs to be more of a last resort. Uh, third, the amount of compensation that they determine might be set at such a high amount that it doesn't really benefit anyone. And then fourth, uh, those who are in local office and those in the Senate um, have already indicated that they're not likely going to honor this. Now, there are some within the campaign who have some more real expectations around all this, and they weigh the success of it more on, you know, the shift in discourse, this shift in discourse that people always talk about, but um, instead of like the actual follow through of the policy. But, you know, as the authors here rightfully point out, that discourse is often very limited. Um, their uh, talking points have been more of a focus on the evils of foreign corporate capital. And they kind of set that as a primary problem behind Berlin's housing crisis. Um, the, the problem is that they make no reference to the larger issue of capitalist property relations underlying the very housing market that generates these problems. So none, none of this is really meant to denounce the campaign, their campaign or any parliamentary efforts, including the ones that, that we're taking here in San Francisco. Um, But what the authors are are indicating here is that reliance on campaign work alone and a hyperfixation on corporate investments, that's that's all bound to fall short. What the Friends of the Class of Society indicate here is the necessity for more more radical forms of struggle um, and for a more generalized critique that will address property relations as a whole. So I I do think there is just as much opportunity uh, here with Berlin Uh, for radicalizing and organizing in the face of these limitations as there was for the LA Tenants Union uh, when they faced the failures of privatized affordable housing. The key, again, is being properly prepared and upholding that larger analysis, uh, the wider critique of property relations so that uh, these moments of capitalistic failure, uh, they can become opportunities for collective organization and power. Um, So one last piece, and then I'm going to Open it up for questions, um, but uh, I'd like to turn to the "Stomp Out Slumlords" pamphlet so that we can get a sense of what uh, might help us organize and achieve that that type of collective power. Okay, so through the course of the pandemic, uh, Metro DC DSA Stomp Out Slumlords shifted their uh, activism work, their tenant activism work, from one that was more advocacy focused. So, you know beforehand they used to just draw attention to the injustices of individual cases. They shifted their work from that to one of mass tenant organization. So this entailed uh, fully committing themselves to supporting rent strikes, supporting demands for rent cancellation, and expanding their work from uh, 13 organizing volunteers working with seven properties to 40 organizing volunteers under uh, 20 properties. Uh, Throughout all this, Stomp out uh, states that they have found, yeah, so throughout all this, stomp out states that they have found a means, quote, to break from the rituals of liberal NGO politics and set up serious fighting working class organizations with minimal resources. So between 2020 and 2021, they were able to achieve a year without eviction citywide and the shutting down of landlord tenant court, a year without rent increase citywide, rent forgiveness with individual buildings and condition repairs for indi- individual buildings. Uh, now all of this stands in contrast to the mass evictions of homeowners that happened during the subprime mortgage crisis back uh, back in 2007 to 2011. Um, and of course, during that crisis, most homeowners took a much more passive approach and, you know, our government of course failed to intervene. But I do think that probably the most significant achievement made through all this uh, by Stomp Out, was their establishment of a real citywide tenant movement. Now, um, at the heart of their success was a new focus on what they refer to as organic leadership. So, by establishing a central organizing committee and training uh, and a training program through which they were able to help volunteers seek, vet, and prepare natural leaders out in the community, they were able to expand their work in a much more sustainable manner and create a real uh, citywide tenant movement. So instead of placing all of the work on the organizing volunteers that they had, uh, they could galvanize select tenants and place them in a position to organize others. During their initial, uh, their own initial outreach efforts, uh, stomp out, slumlords would assess for potential leaders and test them with assignments to see if they could win over their neighbors. Um, for those who were successful, they recruited them. And if uh, someone didn't succeed, but they showed uh, you know, strong determination and willingness to improve, uh, they try to train them. Uh, Stomp Out began to offer weekly two-hour trainings that focus on cultivating the ability to identify and prepare would-be leaders on the community, and push their, organi- their organizing volunteers to commit to attending. The trainings that they had covered uh, fundamental skills for their work, and that included social mapping, uh, identifying leaders, agitation, recruitment, uh, storytelling, so that way they you know could connect with uh, the would-be leaders, inoculation, pushing, um, and then attendees would practice these skills by role-playing with each other. So um, as their operation expanded and the demands increased, Stomp Out started to prioritize what would align more uh, with their efforts to develop leadership and build structures for mobilizing masses. So because of this, um, this oriented them more towards larger apartment complexes uh, where they could reach larger numbers more efficiently um, and where they could also step up against larger scale, well-connected landlords and developers. Uh, any cases that didn't lend themselves for organizing uh, opportunities, um, so that's you know like single-family homes, small apartment buildings, so on. Those had to be referred out to local mutual aid networks and uh, legal service organizations. But because they did this, uh, it allowed them to achieve their larger-scale accomplishments and and build that real, substantial organized tenant movement. Yeah, mutual aid work. Uh, around food distribution also helped them build momentum for this work. Um, the food distribution work helped them build trust and relationships with neighbors. Uh, it publicized the rent strikes, it radicalized onlookers, uh, and it politicized tenant leaders who faced confrontation with police and management, something that they weren't really expecting. I mean, they were showing up to like give their neighbors food and police were, were trying to stop them. And then also after George Floyd, they started to engage in substantial protests and, um, these started with uh, the DC tenant unions uh, rally to extend the in-place moratorium, but uh, it ended up evolving. So uh, started off with, with the moratorium protests, but then uh, moved on to uh, gatherings to challenge various landlords who were attempting illegal uh, evictions during the moratorium, um, and then even marches on management offices in the homes of big local real estate developers and property managers with those marches, they were able to de- demand real commitments, uh, from those in management and were also, uh, able to open up serious one-on-one conversations between the committee leaders and those who attended. Um, okay. The, the last thing I'm going to just, uh, briefly touch on and then, then it, I will get to the questions. I know this has been a lot. Um, they, they eventually had to split from the, uh, DC tenant union and, uh, while they initially, uh, Stomp Out initially relied heavily on the tenant union uh, to develop their organization skills. And while they did initially hope to use the union as a primary vehicle for tenant struggle and to assume, subsume themselves uh, in that process, uh, they had a lot of conflicts with the nonprofits that were uh, within the DC tenant unions. And these nonprofits often uh, had leadership roles. So a lot of conflicts started to emerge with the nonprofits, specifically around rent strikes. And that, that pushed for them to really uh, consider splitting and eventually split. Um, but once they did split, uh, this freed them up to take a more independent stance in their work. And um, in taking that independent stance, they were able to really stand behind their socialist socialist uh, ideology and, and their, their real goal, which was building collective power. So with that split, they were able to abandon old institutional structures that prevented them from connecting rent strike leaders it allowed them to expand to new buildings because of that. Uh, the different rent strike leaders could meet one another through their meetings. Um, their efforts shifted from uh, more bureaucratic work, like passing bylaws, assigning various official positions relating to other nonprofits. They could shift from that to one that focused more on establishing connections with other tenants, uh, building trust, showing up to help in their struggles, preparing for for some uh, collective action. You know, while pre- previously believing that uh, working with already established organizations with networks like NGOs offered connections and credibility, they later realized that uh, working with these groups would create uh, barriers to the real work that they wanted. And yeah, the union basically at the end of the day was still bound to the system that they were challenging and their own organizing had to eventually become independent in order to continue their work. So just to wrap up this article, uh, again, the key success uh, for them has uh, revolved around building organic leadership. So organizing in a manner that made that organic leadership building possible. So it involved training volunteers to know how to spot leaders on the community, learning how to connect with and galvanize those leaders, learning how to uh, then send them off forward and gather uh, to gather and lead others in the larger fight, uh, all of that. The reason that this is such a difficult task is that capitalism has thrived on individuation and actively disorganizing the masses. In building organic leadership and thereby setting stage for collective power, we are empowered to work outside of the system that will only reproduce barriers to the real change we are seeking, to overpower that system and eventually uh, take the steps necessary to put one, a new one in its place, one of a worker state of collective ownership. <laughs>